you don't sit there thinking you're creating BAFTA worthy television. Mm -hmm. So when you get the nomination, it's very strange. But then when you actually win, it's like blimey. Hey, today we welcome Lindsay McRae to the podcast to talk about his book, My Penguin Year. But first, discover your story, man, with Baypath University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being, quote, filled with positive reinforcement and commitment. They have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer your questions big and small, and it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere, end quote. Don't just take her word for it, man. Apply now at paypath.edu slash MFA. Classes begin January 21st. You know who also sponsors this podcast? My monthly newsletter. That is going to be real important heading into 2020. So you need to heed this house ad and subscribe to the newsletter at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey, once a month, no spam, can't beat it. So James Cameron, the famous film director, said, if you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you will fail above everybody else's rip. Hey, you're here. It's you. What's up, fellow CNFer? It's CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. We dig into what made them writers or filmmakers or radio producers and how they go about the work. So about earlier, the newsletter and such, my plan for a good chunk, if not the entire chunk, of 2020 is to go on a social media sabbatical of some kind. Now, of course, I'd love it if you shared and linked up to the show wherever and whenever you can. Here's my reasoning. It's been taking up too much time and bandwidth, and I want to focus on the work. I want to make a podcast you love, one worth sharing. I want to finish my damn baseball memoir. I want to start a long narrative podcast on a subject to be determined. I have determined it, but I have not to, I have not determined whether I want to announce such a thing quite yet. I want to do more in real life things, but mainly I want to do good work and social media and my phone it's this weird addiction I need to shake. I'm not a chronic tweeter or Instagrammer or face booker or whatever uh, but I tend to mindlessly scroll when I have that odd moment of boredom and there's nothing to do I check the phone like a rat getting a hit of cocaine from his feeder there's something wrong there and I want to snap out of it I want that energy to be directed at the work now of course I won't be a ghost my email is very much available please send missives also, I'll communicate a lot through the newsletter. It's going to be much more robust, I think. It'll contain all the goodies you're used to, of course, but it'll probably contain things I'd tweet if I was tweeting. I'm making a list of all the sites that I tend to visit and things that I tend to stumble across on Twitter. And um, 
making a list of people's tastes I really like so I can reach out to them and ask them, hey, what are the five things that you've been reading that you read this week that just kind of like blew your hair back? So thanks, Edward. To my newsletter, to me, like newsletter subscriber is worth maybe 100 Twitter followers, you know, like because you signed up. There's no algorithm. We're enrolled in this together. And I want to, you know, going forward too, I just want it to be kind of this community. Like I want to be able to offer really cool things. So I want to raffle off cool stuff. You know, if you subscribe too, I get a lot of books and I donate probably 90% of them. Might as well randomly give them away to you for being part of this community. You know, why not? You know, you're giving your time and your attention to this podcast, to the newsletter. I try to give as much value as I can here. Uh, But, you know, if I can throw you a bone elsewhere, why not? Right? So that's where I'm at. I'll expand more, but I want to prime the pump as we uh, wind down 2019. Best way to stay in touch, though, is through this podcast and that newsletter. So go ahead, subscribe to both. You exhausted? That was exhausting. It, it really was. So, Lindsay McRae is here, like I said, to talk about his 11 months in Antarctica filming penguins. And he details it vividly in his book, My Penguin Year. This conversation was a lot of fun, and I hope you dig it. <laughs> That when you were, you know, eight years old, you kind of had this notion that you wanted to. This is what the kind of work you wanted to do. Um, maybe take us to that moment when you knew you wanted to be filming, uh, filming nature and doing this kind of work. Yeah, it's funny. I I grew up in the northwest of England in an area called the Lake District, and we had loads of green space, lots of mountains, lots of lakes, and I was just obsessed with the wildlife. Uh, yeah, it was it was funny. It's it's sort of do I want to be a vet? Do I? I was desperate to want to work with animals, but then I was watching it on television and thinking, well, somebody's got to do that job. Maybe I can have a go at that. But you, yeah, you never you never quite think you're going to get there. I was just a, a normal boy from the north of the UK, and yeah, dreams don't come true for us. But uh, I was one of the lucky ones. And what is, or at what point did you realize that this was kind of a, a path you could chart? You know, were there people that started to emerge that was like, yeah, Lindsay, you can, if you just kind of follow this path, this is this is how it can unfold for you? Yeah, when I was an early teenager, I wrote to the BBC wanting them to uh, come and film in my area because I, I knew the, the place like the back of my hand and could direct them in the direction of, certain wildlife but um yeah well they did they didn't uh, make a film about the area they made a little film about me because this was sort of 18 years ago now i suppose um and for a young boy it was kind of a funky thing to be doing none of my mates were into wildlife or bird watching it was just me um and it was relatively unusual so they quite liked the idea they made this film about me uh, watching a family of badgers and through that i met a few people and kept in touch with them and um i think that was the first key ingredient, if you like, in in my career, uh, meeting some key people in the BBC that I could keep in touch with. Mm. And what uh, in and what were your as you were growing up? Like, what what did your parents do? Well, my dad was a builder. My mum worked in education. Neither of them were into wildlife. Um, where I picked it up from, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but they uh, started paying interest because I was interested. But yeah, it was it was a weird one. I think it's purely because where I was brought up, it was such a beautiful area and 
Um, we were out in the rural countryside, so it wasn't as if I could quickly nip down my mate's house um, because that was a few miles away. Um, so I just entertained myself and did so by yeah watching the the local animals. So I think that's probably how it all started. Right. Yeah, that's a that's amazing. And once you had this itch for it, were were your parents there? Were they like, yeah, let's uh, let's double down. Well, let's let's give him the support he needs so he can pursue this. Yeah, definitely. But I think like me, they were never quite um, quite sure whether it would work or not. Um, I actually left school at 18. I got um, they're called A-levels in the UK, but it's the the qualifications before you go to university. Um, And I decided not to go to university, which thinking back was a pretty bold move. But it was in that first year I had no work whatsoever. In fact, I started working behind a bar. Um, it was in that first year that the BBC offered me a job and all I was doing was making cups of tea and doing the shopping. But it was a foot in the door and meeting yet again more people. And and what kind of as you were as you had that foot in the door, what kind of notes were you taking, you know, figurative or literally uh, as you were in that door, but not doing the concrete work that you wanted to eventually do? Yeah, well, I remember my first job at the BBC. Um, it was for a program called Spring Watch, which is um, a live three-week event, and um, it's live on the television every evening for an hour. And my work would be, um, they'd be pretty long hours. I'd be working from 8 a.m. until about 10 p.m. nonstop and just doing what any whatever anybody wanted me to do. I was a sort of dog's body on the production. So my only spare time was pre-8 a.m., and obviously the, the best time for wildlife is early in the morning. So I'd go in early. Uh, you're talking four, five o'clock wow. uh, in the morning. And I'd be finding stuff and seeing stuff and ringing the producers and ringing the camera people saying, look, I found some cool stuff. Come and film it. So they very quickly realized that I meant business um, and I knew what I was on about. So, yeah, I mean, it was what I would, it was what I loved doing was watching wildlife. But it soon gave them an idea that I was I was keen and I, yeah, I knew what I was on about. That's uh that that level of industry on your part is um I think pretty rare. I think a lot of people might get kind of um kind of jaded for having to like run errands and maybe <laughs> yeah and, and maybe like fall into a sense of entitlement like oh I have I have talent why aren't why aren't I doing the thing but like you kind of off the clock you're already working like a tw- like a fourteen hour day and then on top of that you're going out and scouting and finding things for them to do so. Where, do, yeah. where does that come from? Well, it's just what I love doing. I don't feel as though I've ever worked a day in my life because mm-hmm. everything I do with, with wildlife is what I want to do and it's what I enjoy. So even though I was finding stuff for the guys to film, you know, I was seeing this amazing stuff as well, and that was all I wanted to do. So um, it was win-win, really. Mm. And uh, you also write uh, that there are you know, challenges and thrills of working freelance, and, uh, and of course there's uh, – you know, you you can kind of pick your spots, but at the same time, it can be unpredictable. Um, so, what was that experience like as you started transitioning into uh, your your freelance chapter of uh, of your early career? Well, it's interesting, really, because I've never really known anything other than freelance. Even that first job at the BBC, it wasn't freelance, but it was a five week contract. It was nothing really. So, so yeah, it's funny. I hear all these people that that worry about going out into the freelance world from security. And I've never actually experienced that security. Mm. So, so yeah, I can't really comment. I mean, I, I've been quite lucky. I, I don't feel nervous as a freelancer. I, I quite enjoy it. But I can imagine if I was to move into it from, from knowing what was happening, 
that it would be quite tricky. But yeah, that's all I've known. Yeah, and uh, and how do you uh, maybe chart the chart those waters and like fill up your calendar with with jobs that sustain you su- sustain you and your family also, but also create creatively and as uh, as you try to you know pick those spots and 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 continue to to make a living doing the thing you love. Yeah, I'm cool. Well, I'm quite lucky, really. I. I can pick and choose what I like and there's not a lot of wildlife, which I don't want to see. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, anything that, that comes my way, I'm pretty keen, but, um, but yeah, it is tricky. And, uh, and like you say, it, you can't plan your year. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, just because a lot of trips, uh, can jump around. Times can change depending on either the wildlife or the weather, um so yeah it it is tricky and my wife and i very rarely are able to to plan anything because i can't come back from brazil say for just one day to go to a wedding or Mm. um or a friend's party just to to go back again so you end up missing it so yeah um it is uh, it is a difficult uh lifestyle but on the on the plus side you know i get to see this amazing wildlife all the time and get unprecedented access and as a as a videographer and cameraman, uh, what, early on, what what were some growing pains that you might have experienced as you were developing your skill set? Oh, I don't know, really. I, I mean, I started very young. So when I made that first film for the BBC, they actually lent me a camera, mm-hmm. and that was my first experience with a camera. Um, it's it was what I wanted to do, but I had no all my interest and expertise was on the wildlife. Um, so they let me this camera. I had to give them that back, but very quickly managed to save up and buy myself one. Um, and from then on, so from my early teen years, I'd be filming as much wildlife as possible and sending tapes to these people in, in the BBC. And they'd be commenting and advising on where I could improve. So by the time I got to sort of 18, 19, um, I had a, a fairly decent idea of what I was doing. Um, but still, I, I assisted um experienced camera people and very quickly you learn just by watching them um i i I can't say what you learn but it just it's almost instinct on their part and me learning is almost instinct on my part so yeah it just rolls along right and i i always like to sometimes uh piggyback off of sport metaphors of uh, of of like even the the most elite athletes of they've got all the they've got all the physical talent but some of even those elite athletes they spend some of the most time watching film and studying yeah and and that kind of thing and who who might you be able to point to who is just like such a great videographer but they also did like this unseen work that made them all the more better all the more elite um well there's a couple of camera guys in the uk that are still filming now but i grew up watching um, one one guy still filming, but he's retired. He's a guy called Hugh Miles, and he was probably the um, probably the great, in my opinion, the greatest wildlife camera person um, uh, that's existed. He's uh, I think he's in his seventies now, but um, but there was him. There's a couple of guys still working that are in Scotland, and they're all very very keen and passionate about their wildlife rather than uh, the technology. Um, and that's always been my um, my feeling. I've always it's always been wildlife first, and then sort of camera kit afterwards. I'm not a very technical person at all, um, but just yeah, knowing knowing what the wildlife's going to do, and yeah, I think um, I think those guys and 
yeah, watching their work was a definite um, help as I grew up. Yeah, and that kind of uh, leads into what I wanted to ask you next, which kind of boils down to, um, you know, what kind of studying do you do ahead of a trip? And let's just say Antarctica with the Emperor Penguins. You know, what is the kind of research you're doing ahead of time so then you're, you know, you're ready to to see and document these wonderful things happening out on the ice? Yeah, well, I I mean, Antarctica was the same as anywhere else, really. All I do is, if I don't know the wildlife very well, then just have a look at what behavior is known and um, but it's funny because a lot of the stuff I've grown up watching in the UK here, um, common species, um, those principles of of what behaviour they demonstrate uh, are the same across the world. So, say, um, like a, a red deer in the UK would be similar to what a, an elk in the US or um, dogs and wolves. You know, it's it's once you've got a a decent idea of you know um general wildlife then you, you're sort of covered but uh, but in in respect to the emperors the penguins um their life cycle is fairly well known so um that didn't take much uh learning but obviously it's completely different responding to the conditions we were working in, and we simply couldn't replicate those so it was a case of waiting till we got down there uh, and then learning on the job if you like because there's, there's nowhere like antarctica yeah, what was the that moment, the the rude awakening moment of what uh, of of getting hit in the face, maybe quite literally, with uh, the conditions down down there? Yeah, um, well, we'd actually we'd we'd not done any. Well, we'd done training, but uh, on on a glacier in Austria, we'd put cameras into a freezer room in the UK and drop the temperature to minus forty. But yeah, absolutely nothing could prepare me for those storms down there and the wind and just the environmental conditions. And it's funny that the storm was one of the times of the year I was most looking forward to because I knew that they'd be the hardest conditions I'll probably ever experience. And that's what excited me because even even scientists tend to head back to the warm in those kind of conditions. And obviously we had a job to do. We wanted to film the birds battling against these conditions it's what they've evolved to do so yeah but still you're you're looking into the wind and the only bit of exposed skin is your your eyes you've got this balaclava on you've got this strip across your eyes and it's like somebody's uh, yeah just throwing sand at you these tiny bits of ice just smashing you in the face and uh yeah every five ten minutes you have to turn around and give yourself a break <laughs> wow the um in in antarctica is it, it's such a a story of extremes itself and what um just in your in your study in your experience of the continent you know, what maybe surprised you about antarctica that uh, you they that you weren't prepared prepared for in all your pre- preparation before uh, before you got down there i think just the purity of the place there's there's beauty everywhere i mean i knew it would be a special trip and it was a place i'd always wanted to get to but everything about the place is beautiful and the silence is indescribable there's obviously there's no noise pollution there's no light pollution and just that it's just as nature intended it to be i think the thing that got me is we were we were obviously filming the penguins they breed on a frozen ocean which freezes in the autumn and then um breaks up the following spring and summer um so that 
environment, that the, the way like the icebergs and the sea ice freeze for that autumn, for that winter, um, is only like it for that 10 months or whatever. And we were the only people to experience that landscape at that time as it was during that moment. So once it broke away again, nobody else would see that landscape as it was. So I felt very, very lucky to, I mean, it was almost like going to the moon, I suppose. Mm. Um, and it's, um, what's amazing too, what you, what you write about is, uh, that there, there was a time and I don't know if it still happens now, but there definitely was a time when certain researchers or people like yourself would, would actually have like a, an appendectomy going down there because of the isolation and not being able to, you know, if someone's appendix burst, that's talk about danger. So, uh, the, those kind of precautions people would take, um, it's, it just, it speaks to the, the almost, um, suffocating isolation when you really think about it in those terms. Was it, was it kind of, when you think of it like that, was it kind of, you know, scary in a way? Yeah, very. Um, I, I think when I, when I agreed to go, or, or my dream of going to Antarctica and filming Emperors, I was never really aware of what it would take to actually fulfill that dream. Um, and when I agreed to the trip and all this training and all these medical tests were going on, I was thinking, <laughs> crikey, this is serious stuff. And, um, and yeah, that eight month of isolation, it, it changes everything because you have to be completely self-sufficient because you're right. You, there's no way you can get any help. You can get help. You can, you can ask to be evacuated, but the likelihood of that actually happening is so small that you just accept that, it probably won't happen. In fact, it is actually easier to get somebody off the International Space Station hmm. than it is pulling somebody out of Antarctica in the winter. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, we fortunately had incredible medical facilities on the station that we were staying at. Um, our station leader was a qualified and experienced surgeon. Fortunately, he never had to use his skills. But you do think in the back of your mind, you know, if something goes wrong, you're in trouble. So you've just got to live with those things if you want to um to watch emperors through an entire breeding uh, season and how do you mentally approach the the isolation and at maybe at what point does it start to erode at your psyche a bit i didn't really think about this until the the, the couple of months leading up to leaving mm -hmm. um, and i really started to struggle we'd not been tested at all um mentally whether we could cope um, with being isolated, uh, knowing we couldn't get home. Um, and that couple of months leading up to leaving, I, I really started thinking, maybe I'm not quite up ready for this, um, and thought about throwing the towel in. Fortunately, I didn't. But uh, it just sort of dawned on me, you know, it was more that I was leaving people at home. Like I, I had a wife and I was thinking, crikey, I'm not going to see her for 11 whole months. But once you get down there and you get busy, we had good internet. And what did help, we were on the same time zone. So you can pick up a phone whenever you want and, and call home. Um, so that did make life a lot easier. But but still, there are some incredibly tough days in the middle of winter where you just want to get out, but you know you can't. But we had a great team. There was 12 of us in total that lived together for that eight months. And we didn't have one argument. We all got on incredibly well. We looked after each other. And that that's what made the difference, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, and you also write that you were kind of the resident prankster. So uh, to to that point, what were some of the pranks that you were uh, you were doing to uh, you know to uh, foster a sense of camaraderie and also probably oh, I, in levity? Yeah. <laughs> I just loved playing jokes. I mean, it's just me anyway. But especially down there and keeping people's morale up. One thing I did have 
difficulty with was wasn't actually a prank at the end of the day it was it was the day i became a father so i became a dad in the april um and i'd not told anybody on the station but i'd been relentlessly playing jokes up until this point so when we sat down for dinner that evening and i informed everybody <laughs> look guys this is my new little boy um no one believed me and it took me a good hour to to convince everybody that uh, yeah that i wasn't joking how how were you able to keep that a secret? Because that's such a, an animating force of this book too. That you, as you go to the go down in Antarctica, your 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 newly newlywed wife essentially is a few months pregnant, and you're going to miss the birth of your son Walter. So how did you keep that bottled up up until that moment? Given that you were kind of wrestling with the, that struggle. Yeah. Um... Well, I mean, first things first is I didn't tell my producers at the BBC because. I mean, it's a mental enough challenge getting through eight months of isolation uh, as it is, let alone knowing that you're going to become a father whilst you're there. So I thought if I tell them, they may pull me off the project. And this is the this is my dream. This is my one opportunity. Yeah. And I didn't didn't want that to change. So I didn't tell them until the last plane had actually left. So there was no way out then. And I thought, I'll just send this email and hope they don't get mad with me. But um, but yeah, the other guys, um, it wasn't. Well, Becky and I was our first child, so we didn't know what to expect ourselves. And that's one of the reasons we chose to go ahead with this. I think if we knew what uh, what was coming our way, I, I probably wouldn't have done the trip. But uh, it was a first experience for both of us. So so that's why I went ahead, ahead with it. And the, I mean, the other guys had their own worries. You know, they'd left home as well for over a year. And I didn't want them worrying about me, uh, knowing that, you know, it wasn't their problem. So um, I just kept it to myself, and uh, and when it happened, it it happened, and let them all know. And I mean, they loved it because it was sort of a little nugget of normality, if you like, into mm. our extraordinary year. And they were big, uh, they were party animals, the rest of them. So it was a great excuse for a, a few drinks that evening. <laughs> and uh, there's a moment in the book too where you're you're watching uh, watching the penguins, and you and I. Th- I believe you miss the transfer of of an egg from the mother to the to the father, and you, you were like transfixed by it. But then also, like once that moment <laughs> uh, receded, you're like, oh, like oh shit, I I missed this, and like there was that moment of kicking yourself. Um, what was that moment moment like, and how do you process that and maybe recover from it so you don't dwell on it and you can get the next one? Yeah, well, the, the moment was actually an egg being laid. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. But it, but yeah, it's all part of the same process because within half an hour it is transferred to the, the male and the female heads off. But the egg laying was one of the key bits of behaviour I was I wanted to capture because it hadn't been done properly before. I'd scoured the internet trying to find footage of emperors laying eggs and I just couldn't. Um, and I knew that it was a key part of our film. We couldn't. We couldn't really demonstrate emperors reproducing without shots of them laying eggs. Um, And even though um, we still had, what, 5,000 birds to lay eggs, that first one that I missed, yeah, I was incredibly angry because I thought that may be my only chance. And it's funny, I go back to knowing what was going to happen through watching other other wildlife. So, and, And I do write this in the book. The only experience I'd seen of birds laying eggs were from a, a kestrel back at home. Not many people see wild birds laying eggs. It's a very private affair. Um, but me watching that kestrel a few years before Antarctica was was 
um, the only bit of, uh, or it gave me the only clues in my head of what to look out for. Anyway, I missed that first emperor laying an egg, but very quickly noticed which birds were about to lay eggs. Um, and fortunately, we, we ended up getting as many, you know, getting five or six shots of egg laying, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, that evening I was I was pretty down because I, I really thought I'd screwed our only opportunity. Yeah, because it, it also happens in very, very low light, if not completely at, at night. So you're dealing with it's it's hard to spot, I imagine. And so you've you know, if you miss the one opportunity and based on where the wind's blowing and how that pushes the colony, like it, that could have been the opportunity. But fortunately, you were able to recover and, and, and get the shots you needed. Yeah, it's funny because um, the the only part of the breeding process that had happened by the 20th of May, which is when we lost the sun, was mating. Everything else happened in that period of, um, I mean, it's not completely dark, but certainly very, very short days for, for 62 days when we don't have the sun. You've only really got a couple of hours over midday where the sun comes close to the horizon and gives you enough light to be able to film. Uh, and yeah, all that behaviour happened during these two months. So we were under a bit of pressure during the, the winter, but um, but yeah, we had the kit to to be able to help us out. And it's interesting. The last time the BBC, I think, overwintered in Antarctica to film emperors in this way, um, they were all still on film cameras. So a lot has changed since that that last trip. And uh, fortunately, we had access to an incredible amount of technology during our trip. And uh, what kind of struck me too about um, just the process of you you guys you know getting all getting all this tape and all this film was um, I, it made me wonder if the the film their their script and their narration is based solely on what you're able to capture or if you're given a rough script of this is what we want to talk about please capture this if you can like how does that work to for the final package. Yeah, well, and this was slightly different because the series that we were working for was um, was a series where each program was focusing on an individual family uh, of animals and that same family rather than jumping across the planet filming just key bits of behavior from different species. Um, so we were given, we were obviously given each, uh, we were given a shopping list, if you like, of uh, emperor behavior so that included mating egg laying um the transfer of the egg the males huddling this is all behavior which is well known in emperor penguins and it was a it's a story that's been told numerous times before it wasn't new yeah because we were just making a film about the emperors a lot of what did make the final film we were relying on what happened when we were down there and fortunately we had endless amounts of time we had the entire year where we were just sat with the penguins hoping that um big events would happen in front of us. Unfortunately, we we did. We got we got a few events. We got a, a kidnapping, and then this behavior is known to science, but to be able to see it in such detail in front of us, was we were so lucky. Um, we had another event where a couple of birds were incubating a snowball, a lump of ice rather than an egg, and that was apparently them practicing. And after a big storm, the birds, the colony was pushed so far across the ice, they actually relocated and in long lines, traveled back to where they'd started. And, and that was new to science. So these, these tiny little events, which only occurred once or twice in front of us, did form the, the ingredients for our final film. And we couldn't have planned any of those. Yeah, it was uh, what surprised me, too. And, of course, th these birds have evolved over millennia to 
to withstand this kind of pressure and, and weather in that environment was really the abject carnage of of uh, after the hatching is take pla- takes place and it being windy and cold and there's a lot of there's a lot of death on the ice and a lot of chicks don't make it and they have like one shot per season and it's it kind of amazed me how many um how many chicks didn't they, they don't make it just because that's just the nature of the season it, did that surprise you as well yeah i i knew we'd we'd see some death i didn't quite expect to see so much but yeah i think during the winter when males are are incubating eggs and they're sort of waddling around with one egg on their feet um, that doesn't move that's relatively easy it's when the chicks start hatching and they're wriggling around and and obviously once they get to two three weeks old they want to hop off and run around themselves it's quite difficult keeping them under control Um, and yeah very quickly with a bad bit of weather um, a chick can get separated from its parent and that's the end of it unfortunately they just can't withstand the the brutality of those early days on their own and um yeah we had some horrendous storms the weather just seemed to be more and more unpredictable in the spring i was expecting a quite dramatic improvement from the winter but uh, the wind especially was just so relentless and that did uh, cause a bit of damage in amongst the colony and in watching you know things of nature like planet earth or whatever and you see these great sort of mating displays with birds and this that and the other this this gorgeous cinematography um i think a lot of people might not necessarily understand like the the immense amount of patience that that you guys as the camera operators are undergoing to maybe catch a five to ten second clip where you might be sitting there for maybe eight to ten hours to try to get that um i imagine maybe take us behind the scene for that about how, how sometimes how long it takes for you guys to get that that get that perfect shot that we're so lucky to see on the television or on the movie screen. In in my head, nothing's ever perfect. You always <laughs> want to improve. Right. But um, yeah, <clears throat> for, for Antarctica, I mean, penguins aren't difficult to film. They don't move very fast, but the col, you know, there's a lot of them and I'd spend, I, I tend to either kneel on the ice or sit on the ice the camera we'd obviously want to be very low just to generate that low perspective and and that would mean me bent over quite a lot in temperatures that would drop to what minus 50 nearly minus 60 with a bit of wind for hours and hours on end and yeah i'd i'd sort of focus on um well just to give you an example a couple so maybe trying to catch capture a couple either laying an egg or transferring an egg that that could take a while I'd focus on these two birds and and watch and film them as much as possible. And and it wouldn't take much for another bird. They're very inquisitive and they just tend to walk over to you um, Mm -hmm. to stand in between me and the the two birds I'd been watching for so long and ruin my shot. And I'd have to stand up, move the camera to one side to be able to see the two birds. And by this time, the other two birds have either disappeared or they've been obstructed by another bird. Uh, It was incredibly frustrating at the end of the day. So, yeah, it, it takes a lot of time and um, perseverance, but it, it's funny because in Antarctica, obviously, it's so different from everywhere else. Um, a really, really good day in Antarctica where everything goes right, um, no kit breaks, is a horrendous one anywhere else on this planet. You're just constantly battling with the conditions. So, yeah, it, we, I think we had to learn to, to cope with the frustration because it was happening all the time. 
And at what point did you, you know, after you've come home, of course, and you, you, you've unpacked your footage and sent it off to your producers or whatever, at what point do you know that this is a, a book-worthy story and this is something that you wanted to take on from that, uh, of that creative outlet? Yeah, well, I'd always wanted to write a book. For, I mean, from a young boy, I've I've always enjoyed writing, and um, I well never really had the time or or the opportunity. And even before this trip had happened, I thought this you know this is such an extraordinary thing to be doing. This is the perfect subject for me to to write about. And I did start writing down there, um, and I got to the end of February, so a couple of months in, and I just couldn't couldn't keep up. There was too much to be doing. But I kept a detailed diary, and obviously we had a film at the end of it to remind us about what happened. So as soon as I got back, I um, I started again. And, um, yeah, I mean, the whole idea was that it's such a remote place, and so few people ever get will ever get the opportunity to visit Antarctica. Uh, and it's also very expensive, so even tourists, very few of them get down there, um, that this was my my way of trying to tell people what, what the place is like. So... Yeah, I feel very lucky, but but also um, hoping that I can tell people and and show them that these these kind of places still exist on Earth and they're they're worth looking after. And as you were, you know, you know, crafting this and getting into the the mud of of the writing process, um, what was your your challenge of you know, trying to sustain and tell a long story where there aren't that many characters of course that maybe the main character is the landscape yeah i'm i'm not sure it, it was i based it in obviously chronological order from when we arrived and um it was very much centered around the birds uh breeding behavior and breeding season and and the cool thing i found was even scientists that have studied emperors their entire life have not had the opportunities that we had we had this uninterrupted year where we could just sit and watch emperors living their lives and it was such a rare thing to be doing um i think you could probably count on one hand if not two um the amount of people that have been able to do that and yeah so it it was it was mainly following the emperor's uh year but but also weaving in my emotional experience so obviously a lot of people will have seen the final film and there's so much more that goes into these trips than just that um and also, it's not just me that made the sacrifices to be able to do it. I had a wife back at home, and in the end, I had a little boy. Um, and these, without these people, um, the the trip wouldn't have happened. So, um, yeah, that was um, that was the main thing behind the book, really. Yeah, and one of the more harrowing scenes in the in the book, of course, comes towards the end, where you know you guys have made uh, made some. You know, you you've filmed what's going on. A big storm comes through and blows a bunch of uh, pairs, uh, pairings, and families basically into this gully. And you guys have a decision to make. Um, maybe take take us to that moment because uh, you know you guys really wrestled about what to do. Yeah, we've been with the birds probably ten months at this point, and um, we knew them incredibly well. We cared for them. We'd been through almost everything with them uh, ever since they arrived back in the March, um, and. We arrived back to the colony. We'd not been able to get to them for a couple of weeks at least um, with just the most horrendous storm that came through and just didn't relent. And this was right in the middle of um, chicks hatching, so a real key time of year for them. And it was carnage when we got back down to them. There were chicks running around. There were dead chicks everywhere. There were parents looking for chicks they'd lost. 
And then there were these massive gullies where birds had been blown into them. Um, and obviously our first job was to work out what was happening. This was a really unique event that we didn't expect was going to happen. Um, and we needed to document what was happening. That was our job first and foremost. So we sat back and, and very quickly we realized that parents that were still still had such small chicks that they were still on their feet and relying on the warmth of their parent those those adults couldn't move around couldn't use their legs to to the greatest extent and they were just shuffling about and those are the birds that couldn't climb these walls of ice birds that that could use their feet and didn't have a chick to worry about amazingly could get up and down with no problem whatsoever they were using their beak as an ice axe and their strong claws to push themselves up and i mean that was pretty cool because we didn't know emperors could climb that well to start with yeah. but um but these birds were having to make a pretty horrendous decision it was either save themselves and leave their chicks to die at the bottom of this gully that couldn't get out or they both died um and this event was so unique in the fact that they hadn't been chased in there by a predator um, there weren't any other predators in Antarctica at this time of year. Emperors are the only animals to stay and breed through the winter. And that's one of their strategies is um, they breed when no other creature exists. Um, so there's no predators to worry about. But on the other hand, the weather is their big, big predator. Mm. So if we were to intervene, we weren't affecting the balance of nature here because there was nothing else that would, would benefit off dying penguins. Um, and they um, dead penguins would only get buried anyway. So yeah, so we took um took the the steps to to jump into this gully and dig them a little ramp and just give them a shallower incline to be able to climb up and we didn't help them directly we we gave them an option and fortunately they decided to use it. Mm, yeah, it, it, what was amazing is that you gave them that option and then they I, I imagine that they're kind of watching you the whole time and then you know you let them be like you know here's 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 your ramp and if you want to use it it's on you guys and it, it must have been a it must have been a great feeling for you guys to see that first head pop up and as they start kind of marching their way up and into a, a little bit more safe conditions yeah no it was fantastic um yeah we um we dug this this shallow ramp and i remember looking over to them and um this group of birds at the other end of the gully their had heads were hanging low they they looked like they'd given up um but by this time we knew the birds well we knew i knew how intelligent they were um and i did wonder i was like do you do you know what we're trying to do here do you know that we're giving you an option and it only took a minute or two once we got out of the way for the first bird to go over and inspect it um and start climbing up it and that's all it took obviously the rest followed then and copied and and that was that and as you're sitting down to write this book, of course, uh, I, I I love digging into you know routines about how people generate their generate their pages and and uh, in a marry maybe that perfect vision they have in their head with the garbage that is coming out onto the page and <laughs> and uh, so how do you how did you set up a writing discipline over the course of you know your drafting process of this book? So you were getting getting pages, getting words down that you could shape later. Yeah, well, I. The only time I got really was from about December last year. And uh, I actually have two boys now. Ernest was born in April this year. Nice, congrats. So thanks very much. But I knew that if I don't get this book done by the time Ernest is born, <laughs> it won't happen. So I really did have to be disciplined. And um, I sat down every day and I just thought if I could get this many words done today or this many words done this week, uh, I'm on course. 
Um, and I think by the time Ernest was born, I still had the last chapter to write, but um, that was just about doable with the carnage of two boys. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that that was it. It um, yeah, I quite enjoyed just sitting down and and get it doing. Obviously, this time of year in the UK, the weather's pretty rubbish, so um, you're looking out the window and just watching the bird feeders. But <laughs> but yeah, in the rain, it's it's quite nice just sitting down and yeah, putting pen to paper. At, at what time of day did you usually sit down to to start writing? Probably, yeah, a decent session in the morning and then break over lunchtime, maybe a quick walk with the dogs and then same again in the afternoon. Um, and it's funny, you, you, I always wanted to be more disciplined. I was like, well, this week's gone pretty good. Maybe I should up it for next week. <laughs> um, and before you know it, you've, you've done it. So, um, I mean, that's the way it worked with me, but... Um, I guess uh, everyone's different, but um, yeah, it went a lot faster than I I thought it was going to with with this book. And uh, I I like to say that books are often made of books. And uh, what were some some books that you could point to and that uh, that helped sort of inform uh, the book you wanted to write? You know what? None. I this was a a, a book that was. Well, it was the the emperor behavior that I wanted to write about was purely on from my experience. This this was stuff that I wanted to write about that I'd witnessed firsthand. And um, there was obviously key facts about, you know, what how much food a penguin eats or how heavy they become. But what I wanted to make this book is um, is from the perspective of one of very, very few people that has actually seen all these events with their own eyes um and i don't know how many people can say that but i just wanted to um to be able to write all this from my own point of view so um so i didn't actually read that much about antarctica beforehand i just relied on what i'd experienced and i think the uh, the the real special grace note of the whole book is that here you are documenting this very sort of intimate mating ritual and and parenting ritual while while you yourself are sort of removed from that ex- early experience with your you know your newborn son and and your wife i think i think that tension worked you know really well to your advantage of of just the experience and the distance that you must have been feeling as you were you know filming this with the with these penguins yeah it's funny. Some days you you feel extremely far removed, and I, to be honest, didn't feel I was a dad until I got home. On the other hand, when I did get back, I felt like I knew Walter so well because Becky had been able to send me pictures and videos every day, and and the only thing I hadn't done was was touched him. But but yeah, the, there were some there were some tough days in the in the middle of winter, but the whole experience was so magical that. You, I think back now, and it's difficult to remember those bad days because you sort of look at the whole thing through rose-tinted glasses, and you, and you just remember the good bits. Um, and Becky, my wife, constantly reminds me, "You rang me in tears so many times." And <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, definitely helped with the book to to keep going back to those those personal bits. And towards the end of the book, as you're, you know, packing up to go uh, from Antarctica to make your trip home, you said you had read cautionary tales of people returning to reality. And um, what was that moment of apprehension like for you as you leave this, you know, this isolated place with no noise or light pollution and then reenter 
modern civilization. They had, how hard was that transition? Yeah, it, it was something I was petrified of, if I'm honest, because we'd experienced such an easy way of life down there and got very used to it. Um, and uh, nothing happens um, slowly down there. And, and we were actually told, you know, in the next 48 hours, there's a weather window, the first plane's coming, you're going to jump on it, you're on your way home, so pack your bags. And so we didn't really have time to think about leaving. But then, yeah, you're right, I'd not seen a car, I'd not seen a tree, uh, I'd not seen anybody else other than my 11 colleagues for that entire eight months. Um, and all of a sudden, I was going to be thrown into Cape Town Airport, and then Heathrow back in the UK and, uh, and back into to normal life. And um, I was worried because I had read some horror stories about people returning from isolation like that. But I think the one advantage I had, which which ended up saving me, was being thrown into parenthood so quickly um, because I wasn't given that opportunity to think about life down there. I was just, here's your boy, look after him, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a 24-7 job. So um, I think without little Walter and without that job of being a dad, I'd have thought about it and I think I'd have really struggled. Um, but thankfully, he was the the best distraction I could have had. So, yeah, it worked. And, uh, and, and take us to that moment uh, when you win the BAFTA for your work on, the, on this project. Uh, what, you know, what was the, the predominant feeling as you, uh, you know, you, as, you, as you win a premier award for the, your primary work? Yeah, a very, very strange. Um, <laughs> we obviously do this because we love wildlife. You don't, you don't sit there thinking you're creating BAFTA-worthy television. So when you get the nomination, it's very strange. But then when you actually win, it's like, blimey. I mean, it's lovely to be recognized for the work that we've done. But yeah, on the other hand, it, uh, it, it, was, it was very strange. But I know how lucky I am. I mean, a lot of these programs are filmed by, you know, up to 10 camera people. They film different sequences across the, the globe and they all get put together. And, but for this, I was the sole camera person. Um, and just to be given the opportunity to be to be able to make a whole film on your own um, about the creature you've dreamt of, about making a film about, it's, you know, not many people get that chance. And then to 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 win a, a BAFTA on top of that was, yeah, it it did feel good, but but very strange on the other hand because, um, yeah, usually these nights out, I was like, oh no, thanks, I'll I'll just stay at home. But it was Becky who was like, you have to go to the BAFTAs. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So. <laughs> So yeah, so we went and um yeah, we got lucky. And and in uh over the course of writing the book, did you was it a process that you that you celebrated and, and enjoyed and something you want to continue doing or when you are you going to light a match and burn the bridge from the, from that <laughs> from that experience? Yeah, um well, you know what it's it's I I made very clear to my publisher beforehand that you do realize I've never written a book before, but <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, would absolutely love to, to write something else. So watch this space. Uh, I'll, I'll think of something and hopefully uh, have another go. But, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. It's so different to the, the television world. So, um, yeah, no, I, I loved it. And uh, just a couple more things, Lindsay. Um, I, I wonder if just given that Antarctica is so isolated and uh, so dark for so much of the year um, – can you describe what the the sky and the stars must uh, must look like, uh, devoid of all light pollution? What what's that like you know, for someone like me who would love who would love nothing more than to see like a perfect lit up 
uh, yeah. sky like that. Uh, I mean, it is amazing. We we spent a lot of time with the birds under under moonlight in the winter, and for tourists, um, visit the lucky tourists that can visit Antarctica. Obviously, they only do that during the summer when they can get in and out. Um, otherwise, you you've got to experience that period of isolation, and um, you've got to be working for that really. So you don't see um, many sunsets, or you know, it's it's blinding blue and white during that time of year. But to really experience that magic is is when the sun starts to set and you start to get the darkness and and yeah for that you you have to stay for those eight months so it, it yeah that that dark and cold period is is phenomenal because like you say there's nothing there to to spoil it and I think one of the most memorable evenings of our trip was when we filmed the the southern lights over the colony because that event just blew us all away it was just I don't think I'll ever see. Um, a site like that again and it's it's funny because it's probably the most beautiful um that our earth uh, you know the be- most beautiful natural site our earth has to offer and i'm one of very few people that can say they've seen it mm. well uh <clears throat> well Lindsay, where uh where can people get more familiar with your work and maybe find you online so they can uh buy the book and also just uh follow what you're doing and your exploits in the wilderness well, Instagram and, and Twitter and uh, both at BadgerBoy05. And the Badger Boy comes from uh, my first film for the BBC when I was a young teenager because I filmed Badgers and I was a boy. So they nicknamed me Badger Boy. <laughs> so that's where that came from. Yeah, BadgerBoy05. Well, fantastic. Well, it's it's the w- kind of work that you're doing that um, gives people, you know, maybe that an extra push for Conser- uh, conservation and letting us know what amazing critters are out there so that maybe we can stem the tide of a lot of this human induced uh, worldwide destruction so we yeah so these uh, these animals can can so we can all live and these animals can do what they do and maybe we can save this planet so thank <laughs> thanks for all thanks for all your work Lindsay and uh, and thanks for writing the book oh thank you ever so much for having me it's been good fun all right take care Lindsay cheers bye I tell you, recording the intro, I lost all my mojo. That intro took a lot out of me today, man. Hey, well, how was that? Hey, that was not. That was all right. That was not bad. That was a great conversation with Lindsay. That was a lot of fun. Gotta love the accent, right? You know, we Americans, we just we love a good British accent. So uh, thanks so much to Lindsay, and thanks to PayPath, of course, for supporting the show, and thanks to you for listening. I don't just say that offhandedly and dismissively like so many other hosts do i am figuratively on my knees thank you for your time and listening like i said at the top of the show be sure to subscribe to the newsletter brendanomero.com hey hey and join that community first of the month also subscribe to the podcast i mean why not right it's free we want to keep fostering greater connections among the cnf and genre if you're feeling kind leave a review on apple Podcasts. we're getting close to 100 can you believe it Let's do this, man. Let's get to the finish line. Hey, some things, they never change. Like if you can do, interview. See ya.